0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 9 and verse 10. We're going to read together. The title of my sermon is called Holding the Rope. And as we join this passage, uh, Saul has just just been breathing threats against the disciples and he's gone on the war path and he's going from city to city in order to destroy the fledgling church. But then he has his... Revelation, as he nears Damascus, and God says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, blinds him. And all of a sudden, Paul realizes that he has been persecuting the Lord, not persecuting for the Lord. And then God goes ahead and visits a certain disciple, and that's where we're going to meet this uh, in verse 10, chapter 9, verse 10. Now, There was a certain disciple at Damascus called Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles' kings. And the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came "'has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit.' Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, "'Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem?' And has come here for the purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. As I said, the title of my sermon tonight is Holding the Rope. And I want to focus on that last verse that we read about how the disciples delivered Paul from Damascus by putting him in a basket and going up high on the Damascus walls and then letting him down in the middle of the night by holding onto a rope and slowly letting the rope down until they felt Paul's basket touch the ground. And when they felt the release that he touched the ground and had gone off in the night, they realized that they had delivered him. There's a story here, and it's a great story, just, just to read the word of God, to see God in action. You know, nobody's impossible for the Lord to save I know sometimes it seems like it. There's people in our uh, friendship circles, family circles, and you look at them and perhaps for years you've hoped that they would come to the Lord. And and, and instead of getting closer or warmer to the Lord, they just seem to get more hardened. And it's easy for us to give up in our hearts. We know all things are possible, but really, this individual in our family this colleague, this can, could God really save them? Nothing's too impossible for the Lord. I want to encourage you tonight, God can save anybody. I mean, Saul was on his way to destroy the church and God, in his sovereign mercy and grace, just appeared to him like that and turned his life around. God can enter into people's circumstances and so order or invade their circumstances that they come to him. No one's too difficult for the Lord. And so Saul had got radically saved, and, but God went on ahead of him and uh, prepared the place for Damascus because God knew that, when the, that, the, that none of the disciples would want to touch this man He was a murderous man. He'd put men, women, and children who had followed the way, Christians, into jail. The salvation of Saul would just be too incredible for the church to believe. Do you know what I believe? I believe that amongst us here tonight and those watching us, that God has intention to save people that we'd hardly believe would become saved. After all, he saved you, didn't he? Now, I know some of us may have been brought up in Christian circles, thank God, but there will also be some of us here today, and you will remember that you were your own little Saul, or your own little Saulette, if you're a girl, (laughs) and you will remember the days when you were horrendously anti-God and anti-Christ, and sometimes we forget that when we've been in Christ long enough, that we were haters of him, despisers of him, arrogant at times, But God came into some of your lives and turned you around. God is fixing on doing these things again. He has many who have yet to come to him that he is planning to save. And we read the story. Ananias, I mean, it was such a radical salvation that Ananias argued with the Lord who came to him in a vision. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I I would think that if God came to me in a vision and said, ah, so-and-so is going to get saved, even if it was a radical persecutor of Christians, I would hope that in a vision I would say, yes, Lord. But Ananias said, whoa, 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 wait a second, Lord. Don't, don't, Don't you know what this man has been doing? And God was so gracious with him. That's the type of salvations we should believe God for. We should believe God for radical salvation. Sometimes we think that somebody is naturally more open to the gospel than somebody else. Maybe they're more moral or they're more. But, but actually, often it's those that seem farthest away from the Lord that are next in line to get saved. Isn't that right? Amen, amen. Yeah. So. He's there, he, he, he gets saved, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then immediately he begins to preach Christ, and everyone, everybody's confused, nobody knows what's going on. I mean, can you imagine when Paul or Saul, Saul would become Paul? Can you imagine when Saul entered that synagogue? And the very synagogue leaders that had invited him to come and destroy the church were there, and Saul walks in. Uh, Takes the platform, if you like, and everybody's waiting for him to curse Jesus Christ and to stir people up, to round up these Jewish believers, throw them into prison, chase them, and he stands up and he says, I'm here to tell you my testimony. I'm saved and Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine the impact of Paul in this synagogue can you imagine those leaders that had invited him who hated the church the confusion when he began to preach Christ can you imagine that and the confusion of the christians who heard that paul was saul was now in damascus and apparently he'd got saved a lot of them would be suspicious you know this is one of the problems that we have when muslims come to christ In some of the uh, uh, Arabic nations, the church that has been so heavily persecuted for centuries and centuries can often be very suspicious of new believers that have come from Muslim backgrounds. Some churches won't even accept uh, Muslim new believers from a Muslim background because they're so fearful that these people might be there as plants or spies and And with the centuries of persecution that they've had, they find it hard to open up and to greet these people as brothers and sisters. Well, that's exactly what was happening in Damascus. I mean, some of these may have fled from Paul in the first place from Jerusalem. Some of them may have been friends of Stephen, who was persecuted and stoned to death while Paul was holding the coats, Saul was holding the coats. And when you hold the coats, that means that you're in charge of the operation. You are the leader. You're the one that is actually in charge of carrying out this execution. All of this background is not just interesting, it's important for us to understand. Because God is going to move in incredible salvations. And those that we don't expect to get saved are going to be radically saved from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of people from, who, who have been steeped in, in different uh, sexual perversions are going to be radically saved and, and come to Christ. And, and all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds are going to come and make the church a messy place because God's going to save them and bring us to us. And we have to remember that in our hearts we have to stay open. And, and, and be prepared for our normal church life to be disrupted by a move of salvation amongst people that perhaps uh, we wouldn't normally associate with. So, here he is. He's preaching Christ. He's confounding the Jews, and the church is beginning to realize that God is with this man. But then, there is a plot to kill him and it's found out by the church, and they realize that they've got to come to his aid, and so they need to deliver him. Now, imagine this. Someone's got to take responsibility now to smuggle Saul out of Damascus, and you can imagine the believers in one of their house churches coming together, maybe the elders, and saying, all right, you know, they're watching every gate Paul can't go anywhere. We've got him hiding up there on the roof and, uh, you know, we just can't get him out. And they're searching night by night up and down the streets to find him and they're going to murder him outright. What we need is some volunteers to help him escape. How many volunteers do we have in this house church meeting tonight? And some of them might have said, well, wait a second, why would I lay my life on the line for this man that has persecuted the church. I mean, we're not even sure that this isn't yet some tremendous plot for Paul to find every Christian in the city and then to betray us. Or others might say, well, I, I'd, I'd love to help uh, Paul escape, but, you know, I've got a family to think of. I've got a young family. I can't be doing that. Well, some people volunteered. They volunteered to help him escape. And they had an escape plan, and the escape plan was to climb up on the very large Damascus walls and to find a hole in the wall, and then in the middle of the night, they would put him in a basket, and then in these huge walls of Damascus, they would then, out of this, like, you know, window-type section up there, they would put him in, and then they would all hold on the ropes to the basket, and then slowly... They would let this basket down until it hit the ground. Imagine in the middle of night, as they took Paul, the basket, and these coils of rope, and quietly they went from one street to another, avoiding the groups, avoiding those men that were searching to destroy this new believer, Saul, uh, who had betrayed uh, the, the Jews in their minds and become a Christian... And eventually, they then, in the dark, climb up these stairs until they get to a very high point in the wall. And then they find this opening. Paul gets into the basket. The men hold the rope. They put the basket over and they take the strain. They're holding the rope for Paul. And they're going to hold that rope till his basket touches the ground. During the time that they're holding the rope, they're very vulnerable, slowly letting him down. At any moment, if they were discovered, those that were trying to murder Paul could jump upon them and uh, destroy them, take them all out in one go. But they're holding the rope for Paul, holding it, holding it, feeling the strain of the basket and the man in the basket but they keep holding. Don't let go now. If we let go, he's going to fall to his death. Hold on, take the strain, and keep holding till his basket touches the ground. And then after what must, must have seen for ages, because it was a, a very tall wall, eventually they feel that the rope is loose. The basket has touched the ground, and they know that Paul has got away. I think there's a lesson in this because it was these men that volunteered at a, at a cost and at a sacrifice and to great danger to hold the rope for this man's Saul so that his basket to, could touch the ground. I believe that God is calling each one of us to hold the rope for somebody else. The rope of someone's salvation. You say, what is that rope? That rope is prayer. That rope is faith. That rope is love. That rope is action. That we will hold the ropes to the people that God puts on our hearts and will pray and will believe God and will witness and will serve until their basket of salvation hits the ground. You never know who's on the end of the rope in the basket that God gives to you. These men had no idea who was on the end of their rope that they were holding till the basket touched the ground. What if they'd not done it? What if they'd dropped him? What if they'd refused? They had no idea that on the end of the rope that they they were holding was three quarters of the New Testament. Think about that. Can you imagine? I think they might have trembled a bit if you'd say, hey, do you know who you've got on that, um, in that basket that's halfway down? That if you drop him, he'll die? No. Well, his name's Saul. He's going to become the Apostle Paul, and he's going to write three quarters of the new covenant. <gasps> Oops. <laughs> I mean, they had no idea what, what was on the end of that rope. They just thought it was some, you know, person that persecuted them that had, had, had now become a new Christian but they were patient you never know who it is that God brings you into contact with family members as I said colleagues or neighbors and they're not yet saved but you don't know what kind of radical Christian they may well be you have to have faith for souls it's not just enough to hope for souls you have to have faith, you have to come to God and believe and to pray and to act, believing that that person that God has laid on your hand, uh, on your heart, or put into your environment and daily routine. You've got to believe that God is going to change their lives. This is why prayer is so much a part of bringing people to Christ, because Prayer, God uses prayer to change people's hearts. It's amazing. You would think, well, God won't interfere with free will. God interferes with free will all the time. I'm so glad that God interferes with free will or I wouldn't be standing before you here tonight. Because in my freedom of will, which is actually bondage to the enemy, I would have never have chosen him what about Paul's free will? Uh, I think God uh, overrided uh, Paul's free will. Paul was free willing up and down the country, persecuting the Christians. And then God decided to knock him off his horse, whether he wanted it or not. This is how God operates. But I bet there was a few people praying for Paul all the while that this was happening. You say, how do you know that people were praying for Paul? Because Jesus taught explicitly that we should pray for those that persecute us. So I think Paul, but I'm sure he was, Paul was on the target list. He must have been on the top prayer target list of the early church. Who else was persecuting more? And therefore, who else qualified for Jesus' statement, pray for those who persecute you, bless your enemies? The early church was saying, well, whoever else we're praying for and blessing, we're praying for and blessing Paul. And I believe that this is part of God's plan, that when we bless our enemies when we pray for those who persecute us that god is using us to release his sovereign will to bring many of them to the lord jesus did not tap paul on the shoulder and say excuse me paul would you like me to knock off your knock you off your horse make you blind and turn you to me god does not have to have permission to come into his own created humanity's lives and experiences. And that should give you courage, because if you have a burden or if you begin to pray for people, you can be sure that God is somehow leading you. You're not in your job by accident. You say, well, I'm just in a temporary job. You're not in your temporary job by accident. You're not living in that house or that flat or that room by accident. You're not on that street By accident. You're not studying at that school or college by accident. Listen to me. Nothing happens by accident. Everything is under the rule and supervision of almighty God. And so have courage. Even if you feel that your neighbors aren't interested, uh, God has placed you there for a purpose. God promised us. He said to us, Go into all the world and make disciples. So why would he place us in places where no disciples are going to be made? God promised us he would make us disciples and therefore it means that we have disciples out there. In the book of Acts, uh, um, God says, I have many people in this city and they're not even saved. We have to grasp hold of what I'm saying so that we can then turn what I'm saying into effective prayer that will begin to change people's situations and allow God's sovereign power to enter through his praying vessels. The reason people aren't getting saved is because people aren't praying. The reason people aren't witnessing is because people aren't praying to have confidence that their witness is going to have an effect. You just can't go cold all the time into a situation and believe that someone's going to get saved. You have to pray. You have to plead. You have to show God that you desire this soul to be saved. And God will put in us, in all of us, there is a desire to see souls saved. Amen. All of us. All. Of, even when we're discouraged... Even when we don't believe and we think they're never going to get saved. Even when we think nothing's happened. Even if we say, well, my experience is is that I'm not reaping a harvest. That's what should drive us to prayer. Prayer is holding a rope for somebody. And you pray, and you pray, and you continue to pray. You hold that rope until God begins to bring that basket To the ground for salvation deliverance. God is calling you to hold the rope. Let me ask you tonight who are you called to hold the rope for? Who? Ask yourself it afresh. You might know instinctively, you might have forgotten. Who is God calling you to hold the rope for? In our cell vision, we have what we call the evangelism of three. It's to help people focus on spiritual issues. And what we do is we encourage people to think in the next month of three people that they are in contact with in any way. It could be a housemate, could be a colleague, in regular contact. And during that month, you pray especially for those three people. You ask God for opportunities to impact their lives in love, in service, in friendship. You pray, and you expect, and you move, and you act, and you're open. And that changes the way that you look at these three people that we ask you to focus on each month. It can change from month to month. It's meant to be a Holy Spirit thing. And when you're praying for someone, and focusing on some, somebody, and praying, and looking for opportunities, then when you go into work, you notice them in a way that you didn't notice them before. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because you just prayed for them this morning. You're looking for opportunities. You're you're out to help everybody, of course, but but these people are on your heart and you're praying for them. Uh, At the end of work, instead of perhaps just going home, you've been praying for them and you might say, hey, do you fancy going out for a bite to eat or however you feel led. And you begin to do little things, but with intention, because behind it there is prayer. These are the simple precepts of holding a rope for somebody's lives. It wouldn't surprise me that if out of this sermon tonight somebody said, I'm going to pray for a specific individual at work, and I'm gonna contact them, I mean, I'm gonna speak to them, I'm gonna invite them to do something fun that God wouldn't be involved in that. I would would think that God would be involved in that. Or perhaps somebody that you know that you haven't been in touch for a while because we're all very, very busy. But you say, do you know what, I'm gonna pray I'm going to give them a ring or a text, and I'm going to say, hey, it's been a while, let's meet up. And I'm going to pray for that meeting. Something, just triggering something with prayer. What's that? You've just picked up the rope for the first time, or you've picked up the rope again for that individual. And often the Lord will lead us in this. And holding a rope, I'm not saying everything's going to change overnight. Overnight. But if nobody's holding the rope for somebody, how is their basket of salvation ever going to hit the ground? You know Romans 9 and Romans 10. Romans 9 is wonderful because it says God is totally and utterly in control of everybody and all things all the time. But Romans 10 is wonderful because it's the other side of the coin. And it says, hey, how can they get saved if no one preaches the gospel to them? And how can they have the gospel shared with them in word and deed if nobody goes to them and if nobody sends them? And and don't you know, salvation is easy. You don't have to climb up to heaven or go down to earth to find it. Salvation is in your heart. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead and you shall be saved. And so there's this divine behind-the-scenes working that we're not... Um, uh, aware of many times behind the scenes we don't know why we're here we, we, we find ourselves in a job we find ourselves in a place we find ourselves on a plane we find ourselves in a train and, it, and it's late and there's people around us and God is sovereignly setting scenes but if we're alert to the fact that God is at work sovereignly and, and we are praying and ready and looking for opportunities you'll be amazed at how many divine appointments are passing our way all the time. And if we're ready to hold a rope, then someone's basket will eventually hit the ground. Didn't someone hold a rope for you? Who held a rope for your salvation? I always think fondly, it may have been many people over a long period of time, you know, grandmothers praying for us, that type of thing. And, and often in our, in our lives, isn't it true that on our journey to faith, we have divine appointments on the way, don't we? We met somebody here, we met somebody there, somebody sowed a seed here, and God is sovereignly moving divine appointments until we finally come, come, come to Christ. Well, I remember somebody that held a rope for me, and that was when I went to university. And in, in my first term, I was doing theology. It's a long story, but God was setting the scene for me even before I was saved. And when I got there, there was a a young guy in my uh, tutor group and his name was Mark. And immediately he befriended me and shared the gospel, shared friendship with me. And then at the right time in the first term, I gave my life to the Lord. It, It was a little bit more complex than that. There was a lot of resistance in me. But he held the rope until my basket of salvation touched the ground. And now he's a canon in the Church of England. And I often, I say to him, you know, Mark, you didn't know what was on the end of your rope. You didn't know that one day I would be preaching at Kensington Temple, that I would write uh, some commentaries on the Bible and things like that. You just just saw there was a person in your vicinity and you said, you know, I'm going to pray for this person, I'm going to hold the rope. For this person, so their basket of salvation may hit the ground. And I'm so grateful that he did. Because, you know, God sovereignly saved me, but without a mark, how could it work out? You are God's vessel of salvation. You are God's Ananias. Uh, you, you are one of these men that was holding the rope for Paul. It, 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 it is not just luck that people get saved. It is not just... Uh, that somebody exercises free will. No, it is the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit quietly working sometimes years in people's lives and bringing everything to a place where salvation takes place. Who held the rope for you? Who will you hold the rope for and not let it go? I want to encourage some of you tonight to pick up some ropes you've put down. All right? Let the Holy Spirit apply this to our hearts. People who are on the end of ropes that you've forgotten about, got too busy for, it's understandable. Maybe you just felt, oh, they're not interested. Can I encourage you, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that you would pick up some ropes. Get in touch with some contacts as the Holy Spirit lead. I'm not asking you to turn the world upside down. I'm just asking you to pick up a rope and do something for someone. Knock again, ask again, connect again, pray again. I'm not asking you to get into revival mode and pray nine hours a day, because you wouldn't do it. Neither would I. I'm just asking you to start where you are, and to let the Holy Spirit do that. The second thing I want to say about this sermon when we're talking about holding ropes, I've spoke about, spoken about holding the rope for somebody's salvation. But also, this reminds me of holding the ropes of God's promises. You know, believing God is very much like holding a rope, and on the end of it is a basket. The basket of the promised manifestation of what you're believing God for. Now, you just can't pick and choose whatever promise you want in the Bible... The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word of God gives us what we call rhema words. You know what a rhema word is? We often use the phrase logos which means is the Greek word for word in the beginning was the word the logos. We often use the word logos for the whole of the Bible, all of the information there in scripture. We call that logos. But often we'll use the word rhema and that rhema means that word personalized to you by the Holy Spirit. Uh, have you ever, some people, they have Bibles um, and they take a highlighter pen and when some verse really strikes them or some bit, they highlight it. Well, that really spoke to me. You can also do that on your apps, can't you? You can highlight or mark verses and someone says, oh, I was just reading my Bible, my daily Bible reading or something and a verse jumped down. Do you know what? It was just for me. Or oh, God reminds us of promises In the Scriptures, you know you're praying and a Scripture comes to mind. Very often these are rhema words. Or someone speaks a prophetic word out of the Scriptures into our lives and it resonates and we know that God is speaking to us. These are rhema words. These are words that God wants us to take like ropes. And to hold on to the ropes of these personalized promises that God is speaking to us through His Word and the prophetic ministry. You take it like a rope, on the end there's the basket of blessing. And then there's always a period of holding on to the promises, believing the promises, trusting the promises, putting the the promises to work until they finally manifest in your life. Or until the basket of blessing touches the ground. It must have been difficult for those men to hold on to that rope in the pitch black, because very soon, I mean, Paul was there, and then they could just about see him in the dark. Then he says, okay, I'm going, gets into the, into the basket, and then he's over the wall, and he's out of sight. All they can feel is the weight of the man in the basket. They can't see him. And faith can't see, but it can feel the weight of God's promises. It's called a burden, a prophetic burden. So God will give you a burden, or God will give you a word, or God will give you a promise. And you'll feel the weight of that burden. It's like holding on to a rope. You can't see it because you can't see what has not yet manifest. Faith deals with the unseen. But that doesn't mean what you're dealing with in the unseen, you can't feel. You feel the weight of what's happening in the spiritual world. Have you ever had a prayer burden? A burden comes upon you, and you just pray, and the burden's on you, you have to pray through, don't you? It's a bit old-fashioned to talk about praying through, but the old Pentecostals used to pray things through. They would get a burden from the Lord, a promise from the Lord, it could be a soul to be saved, it could be a prophetic revelation, a promise of God from the Scriptures, And they wouldn't just say, oh, praise the Lord, that's a nice promise, well, let's see if it takes... They would take the promises of God, and they would take those promises back to God with a prayer burden. And they would pray, and they would pray, and they would pray. You see, faith is like a pregnancy. When God uh, takes the seed of his word and impregnates our soul, the word comes with spirit... And we conceive in the Holy Ghost in, in a way. And then what we need to do is bring to birth that which God has promised us.